This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we look at the globalization of curriculum markets with Professor Catherine Doherty. Catherine uses the example of the International Baccalaureate Diploma in Australia to think about the movement of global curriculum inside local markets. So you get this lovely, um, it becomes this lovely sort of lived experiment of a global product being localized and embedded in uh, local environments, which both change the product and the product changes the local environment. So, so there's, as something new comes in, the endogenous uh, ecology is impacted. Yeah. Why do schools choose to include global curricula like the IB? And what impact do these curricular offerings have on educational choice, both locally and globally? It's not so much whether or not you move, it's whether or not you've got the option to move or the imaginary about mobility. And that's, that's what the IB is changing in our local populations. By looking at various schools across Australia, Catherine unpacks the social ecology of the IB, highlighting ideas about educational strategy and imagined mobilities. She empirically demonstrates how the global local binary is a historical artifact. Catherine Doherty is a professor of pedagogy and social justice in the School of Education at the University of Glasgow. Catherine Doherty, welcome to Fresh Ed. Oh, thanks. Well, this is... um. I really appreciate the invitation and the opportunity to talk about my work here. Yeah, thanks. So what is the International Baccalaureate? Okay, so, so the International Baccalaureate, which lots of people call the IB, uh, started in about the 1960s around the population, the expatriate population that collected uh, to service the, the UN office in Geneva. So it was a... Um, it bubbled up uh, as a sort of a movement of, of quite well-educated parents working in that setting, concerned about their own children's education and capacity to get back into their, their uh, country of origin um, educational system. So uh, that rather unique history has created created a rather unique curriculum um, and, you know, and uh, the organisation, the International Baccalaureate Organisation was, was – uh, uh, I suppose the first um, organisation to to perceive the demand for a more global, globally mobile curriculum and find a way to deliver it or design it, and 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 they've really set the tone for a lot of um, subsequent efforts to create the global citizen. Or yeah, you know, they've set the agenda in many ways. So as an organisation. They started off offering the senior secondary, what I call a senior secondary curriculum, the the final years, uh, with an eye to university entrance. Um, but subsequently, the the organisation has sort of grown and changed over time, and they now offer a primary years curriculum, a middle years curriculum, and a more vocationally oriented um, curriculum, which has been taken up in different nations under different sort of um, logics for different reasons. Yeah. So you basically can go to an IB school from kindergarten to 12th grade? Yes, I would say I would think that um, a setting that offers the, the whole suite, they're, they're, they're not common, so you'd have to look hard to find that. But yes, yes, 
the 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 um there will be places where you can do your whole education in the international baccalaureate programs yeah so which level of education is more common among the others so if the whole suite is not there what is what is typically there uh well you'll get different kinds of things happening in different places and that's what brought me that's why I'm interested in the IB as a phenomenon um, uh, because it gets taken up uh, in different local ecologies. So it's a, a fantastic uh, sort of educational phenomenon to look at um, the global local uh, or globalisation processes. I think the international uh, – I'm a bit out of touch with the actual numbers because they're constantly changing – um, and it sort of grows rapidly in one place and then picks up in another place and that. Uh, but I think the, the diploma is, is its flagship program and what people would most, you know, that's the, the uh, pre-university, uh, the end of schooling years, yeah. So if this started for diplomats in Geneva, um, for their children to learn abroad and then return back to their national school system, how has the curriculum or how has the IB changed? I mean, now it's, it's obvious, like you're saying, it's happening around the world. So are they teaching curriculum that children are, are capable of returning back to their home country to finish school? Or, you know, I mean, like, how does this work between the, the, this global curriculum and these national level students trying to go back to their home countries? Well, that was, um, that was its original purpose. Uh, and it was offered as an alternative to having a French school, a German school, a Swiss school, you know, that kind of thing, which, you know, to sort of the particular, um, uh, you know, fragmenting that international market. So it tried uh, to create a curriculum uh, that sort of was recognised by all those systems, which interestingly created quite a conservative sort of humanist curriculum uh, uh, you know, at which which served the purposes of university entrance very well. Um, it's subsequently been exposed to you know the the, the rolling agenda of uh, thinking around curriculum. What should what kind of citizens we should be producing such and such. But they set out to try and actually have it both ways. They wanted to produce the international minded sort of cosmopolitan and the the and also dignify the the child's sort of uh, national origins um but you know by doing uh, how they did that was a, sort of by making a fairly conservative high-end academic curriculum and with a strong focus on second language learning so that language was had a high profile and they had some other uh distinctive aspects of the curriculum which to me um speak to the kind of people that it, they were targeting. So there was the creative service and action, creativity service and action or CAS, um, uh, which is uh, a requirement that students uh, get out into the community and do stuff. And to me, that's that's got like the service orientation of your, your um, ruling class or middle class. Then there was the theory of knowledge, which was um, a it's a really interesting uh, core part of this curriculum that that has a, a mode of philosophical discussion around ways of knowing. Um, it's it, it's an, a, a quite a unique piece of curriculum, and uh, then it had the extended essay, which uh, has was uh, gave the students reign to to uh, space to 
to their own topic and do an extended piece of work and this was considered as preparation for university studies. Now when they created the, the IB, um, of course university was a much more elite thing than it is now. But, um, uh, you know, it, 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 it was a, a curriculum targeted high achievers with university in their sights. Now, there's been a lot of other pressures on that end of the curriculum as more kids stay on for school and, and so, to, uh, so, and so forth. So you, you use the word conservative twice to describe the curriculum. How is it a conservative curriculum? Well, I suppose here I'm, I'm uh, drawing on Michael Apple's um, lovely work that, that pointed out the ironic combination between neoliberal and neoconservative um, uh, uh, forces in, uh, in the educational sphere. By neoliberal, I'm referring to the, the, in, the interest or the, the, the effort to promote markets and choice. So the International Baccalaureate uh, curriculum, of course, enters into local markets as a choice of sorts. So it, um, you know, it, it sits beside a local curriculum and creates a curricular market, uh, which, which, you know, with differentiated goods that, that speak and hail, hail into different kinds of um, uh, students. By neoconservative, uh, Apple was talking about the, um, I suppose it was a turn in about the 1990s back to more conservative curriculum in terms of back to basics, less progressive um, uh, knowledge construction and uh, uh, more, more traditional um, pedagogies, that kind of thing. So what Michael Apple was pointing out is that isn't it interesting as we go down markets and in, 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 under the um, rhetoric of increasing choice and differentiation. But in fact, what we find is that everyone converges around these rather neoconservative ideas uh, about what is a good education, uh, responding to perhaps, you know, the conservatism of, of parents thinking about what education should be. So we see, you know, the resurgence of, of um, public school uniforms, um, you know, marketing tends to have um, the uniform safety glasses for science and violins for art. So, you know, in, even though we're marketing and we're supposed to be creating a market of difference, we're actually all converging on this this same template, which is a rather conservative template. So, uh, no, so when I talk about the IBS conservative, what I'm saying there is that uh, it's distinct from, well, I was in the Australian setting at the time, so what differentiated it from the local curriculum was firstly it's it's um, a requirement that students carry um, subjects across disciplinary range so they had to take an arts they had to take a humanities they had to take a language a maths a science that kind of thing in Australia by that stage of late stage of schooling students are actually encouraged to specialize and play to their strengths so uh, it's conservative in terms of this rather humanist notion of what is an educated person, what is a cultivated, you know, education for itself, whereas, uh, whereas the, the, the other uh, curriculums that were sitting beside were becoming increasingly instrumental and vocationalised. Uh, so, so it's conservative in that regard in that it keeps those traditions of uh, rich, broad education going. Um, it, I would also say it was conservative in its um, assessment um, design. It, uh, 
with with external exams at the end of the two years, uh, sort of very and it's higher and standard levels, you know, very reminiscent of the English ONAs. Now, sitting in Queensland, Australia, I was sitting in a local system that had got rid of external exams, was into school-based moderated. We were probably one of the more radical ends of systemic assessment uh, regimes. So, you know, uh, but if you take that product, the IB, and plop it into different places, it becomes a different thing. So while it looked conservative in the Queensland setting, it may well look radically progressive in places with very didactic um, pedagogies. So, um, it, so my work, I often talk about its relational properties and my interest was not in the IB on its own terms, but rather what does the IB do when it enters curricular markets? So, you know, how does it affect what's going on locally when it comes in and, and brings its practices and sort of culture? So let's turn to Australia. What, how did it affect the, the Australian market when it entered, when the IB entered um, the, the possible choices that parents could make for their child's education? There's, um, it's an interesting history, I think, and it's, a, and it's, and it's an interesting story. There's, uh, there were a, a number of waves, I would, I'll call it, of how the uh, IB was taken up or the IB diploma was taken up. Initially, it was taken up uh, in the uh, in two places where there were one where there was a diplomatic um, population, so that was its sort of um, historical um, uh, target group, and another place where there was a large international um, business uh, community. So, for, uh, because of a particular program, um, manufacturing industry. And so it was taken up there for the you know internationally mobile expatriate. However, then in about the nineties in Victoria, the local um, curriculum went through a review. Now, this is my understanding of the history. Um, the local curriculum went through a review, and it was uh, redesigned to be more inclusive, um, to to and and less targeted towards the university entrance. Now, of course, the people who are comfortable with the university-targeted curriculum didn't like what had happened to their curriculum. They thought it was being dumbed down. So in that space and in that debate, the IB started to look like a very uh, desirable product and it, it, it was embedded in some uh, high-end private schools as a niche of distinction and, and a way for them to keep up their, their academic standards. So that so we had a wave of schools in that in that space under that logic. Then um, then we get it taken up in in uh, more haphazardly around the place. But what really triggered my interest was a move by the Queensland government under a labor labor um, party. Uh, must have been early two thousands two thousand five two thousand and six, uh, somewhere around there. I should be more precise. Um, now, the Labor government had become concerned uh, after a decade or so of neoliberal marketisation um, policies. Uh, there was, they were concerned about this middle-class drift away from the public sector to the private sector. So they uh, went on as, uh, adopted a strategy of producing um, selective senior colleges that were specialised and attached to universities and offering the International Baccalaureate. 
So what they really did was uh, a radical intervention in the public schooling market to um, rebrand, uh, you know, to, 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 to recapture the, 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 the bright, academically bright, ambitious student for the public system uh, by offering this an arts-based, uh, medical science-based and a science technology-based uh, college or sort of senior college. Uh, and uh, so that, to me, I'd been looking at the IB uh, as a phenomenon and um, then to see the my local government choose that curriculum when it actually designed and operated its own curriculum uh, to, to underpin specialised colleges, to me that was a bit of cognitive dissonance because the IB is, is actually the anti-specialist curriculum. So there was a lot of stuff going around about who consumes the international baccalaureate, why, under what conditions. Yeah, so it, it's, um, it's not a natural neutral thing. It actually takes up uh, and is, is consumed in different ways. And, and when you say consumed, you actually mean like the governments have to pay for this curriculum, is that ah well, well, it's consumed at different levels. I, I, in my work, I talk about the school strategy. Why would a school decide to offer the IB, and then um, the parent and child strategy? Why do they they choose the? So there's different you know sort of layers. Um, at the government level, uh, there has to be um, for the International Baccalaureate, this is Australia I'm speaking, for the International Baccalaureate to be offered in a public system, there actually must be the legislative um, uh, conditions that allow that to happen. Now, Victoria and Queensland made it possible. Interestingly, New South Wales, that has a fairly conservative academically oriented curriculum, didn't want a bar of the IB. So they've actually made it quite difficult for public schools in that state to take up the IB, though there is some activity in the private sector. And uh, then you get another ecology in South Australia that where the private schools are not uh, required to offer the local curriculum so the, the private schools could shop around and, um, and there was quite a lot of uptake of the IB, uh, both prim you know, the primary and the, uh, the diploma um, curricula there. So you get this lovely, um, it becomes this lovely sort of lived experiment of a global product being localised and embedded in uh, local environments which both change the product and the product changes the local environment. So, so there's, as something new comes in, the endogenous uh, ecology is impacted. Yeah. And so talk a little bit about the students and the parents and the, you know, these, these family choices that yeah, yeah. were obviously impacted when, these, when this global curriculum entered these local markets. Right. Well, um, I'll start with my own personal story. I was sitting in a suburb in Brisbane with three children and um, I realised that I had around me, uh, when I was choosing a, a high school, I had, uh, I think it was three high schools in sort of easy commuting distance that had decided to offer the International Baccalaureate as a diploma. And for, yeah, for various reasons, but I, I don't think the cluster was accidental. I think the cluster of schools making that choice was uh, a, a little micro-competitive, um, you know, environment. So uh, 
across my work, we've done we've looked quite a lot at you know interviews and surveys of parents choosing and not choosing the IB when it's offered in their local school or in the in the school they've chosen. And what we found is that the it, the IB is chosen by the better educated and the more uh, socio socioeconomically advantaged parents in the school. So it is a product of distinction that is used to create a sort of rarefied niche that is, um, you know, uh, by its selectivity is quite advantageous for the child. Now, to create that selectivity, of course, it has to send out so it's 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 like a, a very interesting ecology to send to it has to send out messages of its intellectual ambition and and you know it's it's not for everybody it's 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 you know in the Australian context it was uh, hungry you know create uh, required a lot of time and commitment on part of the kids and it had this um, you know exam at the end of two years so there was risks attached to it. So by sending out those messages, it created its niche not so much, well, not only by the people it selected in, but also the people who took the message and selected themselves out. So um, uh, it was kids who are ambitiously, uh, academically ambitious that chose this, um, you know, high-octane learning environment and that, of course, pulled that kind of kid out of your, your local curriculum classes down the, down the corridor so you've got this scholarly advantage pooling in in the the IB and stripping that kind of advantage out of the other classrooms. So some of my work was interested in, um, you know, the kinds of conditions for teachers' work that the curricular market created. So while a teacher might have these bright, uh, applied, engaged students uh, working on the IB, and it was typically small class groups, down the corridor you'd have another teacher with the big non-selective class, um, you know, picking up the externalities of the IB. So that's what I mean by, you know, we have to look at it ecologically uh, in, in terms of when it comes into a space, it creates a market that has effect, ripple and flow-on effects yeah, for, for not just people in the IB. Right, right. And it, it seems like it also has a very clear class distinction um like social class well it has a yeah it has a class appeal i think it has an appeal and and it's it's it appeals to people and parents who have been successful in the academic curriculum so you know they'll be able to help their child or understand the kinds of cultural capitals and symbolic capitals that that accrue through doing this uh, yeah so there was one um uh, school i did a, a case study school i i spent some time in and there was an interesting um, explanation of some some students who did the had chosen the IB for the wrong reasons, and um, they were trying to find you know the family were looking for a space where the kid wasn't going to get bullied, um, but the child was struggling academically. So um, there's a Canadian scholar Paul Tark who's done a good a great little book that's a history of the IB and he talks about the tension between the I and the B in the IB so the 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 notion of you know this um progressive social agenda of the international you know uh, inclusive um cosmopolitan but the B is the academic competition the baccalaureate you know the 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 capacity to um benefit and be advantaged by the high academic 
um, uh, you know, value of the IB and how those two struggle in the consumption of the IB. In in the schools that you were looking at, um, were the students primarily Australian or or were these students coming from other countries as well? Well, um, the article um, uh, in the British Journal of Sociology of Education where I I sort of report on a, a focus group interview uh, then some survey data. That group of students uh, were sitting in a, a public school, uh, but they included. Uh, uh, you know, we did a, a careful analysis of their of their backgrounds. We had students, uh, international students, who basically shopped around the world and found this uh, this version of the IB available at a at a good price. So that they'd come to this school uh, from China. We had uh, expatriates that were temporarily in uh, in the Australian town but were due to go back uh, because of parents' work. We had people seeking permanent residence. We had uh, temporary, mi- yeah, temporary migrants. And we, then we had locals who had got interested in the International Baccalaureate because it had turned up in their local school. So um, uh, the... Over the time that I've been watching the IB, it's really interesting how it's uh, sort of uh, escaped its original design of of servicing the expatriate, and now it's it's much more uh, available to local populations in their local schools, which of course raises um, questions about whether or not it can de- deliver on international mindedness. The international mindedness is one of its key um, claims. Uh, but um, there's there's a bit of literature there saying, well, that's actually achieved vicariously by pulling kids together with um, a variety of backgrounds and they educate each other, so to speak. <laughs> but whereas, you know, it's actually quite hard to find it in you know, watching classes, it was hard to find it or to see international mindedness being um, produced uh, pedagogically. So I, I would imagine that would be quite hard to find right like what does that look like <laughs> international mindedness yeah well I should be able to point to the app um the paper but oh, it was a chapter in a book that's right with um uh Byram and Devon Devon where we where we explored how different teachers in different subjects of the IB diploma interpreted international mindedness and you've it, it's a very protean thing everybody's got a different take on it and uh so you know uh, you know, I, I really wonder whether uh, the, the branding is can deliver. However, that said, you've now got every curriculum in the world or curricular organisation struggling with how do we produce versions of global citizenship? You know, how do we teach our students to be citizens of the world and not just, uh, you know, strident nationalists? Uh, so they're not the only curricular body struggling with this question. Uh, to their credit, they were, you know, early adopters or people who got into this space and have been thinking about it for a while. I, I think we're all struggling with this question. It doesn't, you know, and, and there'll be lots of experiments on what does uh, global citizenship look like in, in, you know, its curricular expressions. In In that local public school that you were just talking about, you were saying that some students were in the chose to be in the IB program. Were there other students in the local public school that were just in the normal local curriculum? Yes, yes, absolutely. And that tended to be how um, the IB happened. 
uh, or, or was realised in Australia. Uh, so that's why, I'm, uh, you know, for me the, the concept here is curriculum markets. So if the IB does not run its own schools, uh, there was um, the world schools that were exclusively IB, I think, early in its, um, you know, I'm on dodgy ground here. But in Australia it would be brought in as a, uh, a curricular choice, uh, not as the only curriculum. Maybe maybe that's not true now that with the primary curriculum and the middle school's curriculum, but in the secondary. So you, what you tended to get was the, um, the IB would be offered alongside the local curriculum and so therefore the choice was a comparative choice. So so students, teachers, schools would be thinking about, uh, you know, uh, how does this one curriculum sit beside the other, how do they um, relate? Is is one considered higher than the other? So so some of the case studies, schools I went to, there was a sense that the IB was uh, an, uh, a step up and, you know, it was selective, it was, uh, you, you know, you had to earn the privilege of being in that space or pay additional money. That, um, But uh, because, sorry, I, I didn't answer the question before about how do schools offer it. Um, Schools have to be registered to offer the International Baccalaureate. I think there's some money involved in that and fees for exam papers flying around the world. But um, and, and students pay exam fees, so they pay to sit. And whether or not the school adds additional costs to that um, differs. So, so the, the price of an IB can change in different um, places depending on how the schools um, add or, or pass on uh, the cost that they incur. So it's interesting, right? It's like a, it's a local market, right, that can have a certain price of the IB as well as other curriculums, I would imagine. Mm. But then it's, it's a global curriculum in that there's all these different locales that are offering it. So like you said, there could be this student from China who searched the global market and found the Australian uh, local market to offer the cheapest version of the IB. I mean, that's just so fascinating in terms of how people make choices and yeah. you know what it means in terms of the ability to move around the world to consume the education one desires. That's right. And so that's, uh, that's the, you know, I suppose an extreme example of choice and uh, how choices are no longer contained within the locality, that people are mobile, uh, that that markets are stratified and different levels create different horizons. Um, so uh, I've used the Beck's um, concept of the border artiste. Now, I'd, I, I call it a concept because for me it was really conceptual. I think it, it was probably a passing comment on his part, but um, I think it's, you know, the artistry of playing the borders and how some people get to um, more agency about crossing borders to to seek optimal or advantageous circumstances and other people don't. So uh, now the IB and its braining was very, very, um, what's the word, explicit about if you take this, you, you can go to the best universities in the world. So they, uh, the IB very quickly had this notion of, you know, soul to students or this imaginary soul to students that once they have the IB, every university will take them. Now, in fact, these days, there's an awful lot of mutual recognition. So uh, that's that that quality is no longer the the sole um, uh, 
privilege of the International Baccalaureate. Uh, you know, you can take a, a, a US school certificate and, and it'll be recognised elsewhere and so on and so forth. But the interesting thing is that the IB did a lot of work and continues to do a lot of work behind the scenes to ensure that um, high-status universities know about the IB and validate it. And, and so they, will, they, they uh, proactively protect um, the recognition um, sort of link um, and, and put the IB into the, the uh, university um, uh, selection process. You know, the, the people in that, in that space, they know about the IB, it's actively promoted. So, um, you know, they are an extraordinary um, example of a global, you know, an early adopter of globalisation products, uh, um, strategies. So going back to the notion of the border artiste, um, this, that, that took me into sort of um, Beck's space of, of individualisation and uh, through some of my other work I've developed Margaret, uh, I've developed uh, sort of empirical work from Margaret Archer's idea of um, uh, reflexivity project strategy to, to uh, you know, pursue one's concerns and that sort of thing. Um, and then um, there was a third one. Oh, John Uri's work around mobility and uh, how the mobility of some impacts on everybody's life circumstances. So if you have a, a local school with a stratified curriculum market within it, so you have some students being given the local curriculum and being told about what it sort of what kind of world it, it opens up for you. But then you down the corridor you've got another group of students being uh, given very extended horizons and and aspirations and and whose whose imagination has been sparked by this idea that I can go to a university anywhere, that's creating very different ideas and aspirations in students. Um, uh, in fact, you know, like if you um, there has been some some follow up studies to say, do students who do the IB actually go on and study uh, overseas? For Australia, no, they don't because it's too expensive. So actually not many Australian students act on that promise, but that doesn't mean that that promise hasn't done some work in their imagination about who they're going to be and what kind of world they are entitled to or they have access to. So um, uh, you know, so in this little article, I've, I've really touched on a lot of the theoretical resources around border artistry, reflexivity, projects, choice strategy, and how it's not so much whether or not you move, it's whether or not you've got the option to move or the imaginary about mobility. And that's, that's what the IB is changing in our local populations yeah. or, or its ilk or its type, yeah. Well, Catherine Doherty, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. I mean, the IB sounds like a, a very fascinating topic and I'm sure there's a lot more work to be done to think about the transnational class that it's creating. Thanks, Will. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Catherine Doherty is a professor of pedagogy and social justice in the School of Education at the University of Glasgow. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. 
Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Yuval Devere, and Hong Zhong. Aggie Hu is Fresh Ed's social media coordinator, and original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.